This podcast is brought to you by Audible. Please visit audiblepodcast.com slash G-O-T for your free audiobook download. Welcome to the Game of Thrones podcast, the officially unofficial podcast for Game of Thrones on HBO. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And today we're talking about Season 5, Episode 4, entitled Sons of the Harpy. Son of a Harpy? <laughs> how, how, how'd you like this episode? Uh, I liked it. I liked it a lot. I felt yeah. like there was two episodes worth of content. It, it, the, the time just kind of... But it didn't feel long. It just felt like it was just super packed with a lot of interesting things happening. Mm-hmm. And a lot of really great quiet character moments. The parts uh, with like Stannis and Shireen were awesome. Sure, uh, but also some really epic stuff, like possible death of Grey Worm and Ser Barristan. Possible shocking death of, or maybe not so shocking, mildly interesting, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still haven't gotten over it. It it was pretty amazing though as a as a show only viewer. Uh huh. I liked it. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything to start with, or should we get right into the recap? Yeah, it was directed uh, by, this episode is directed by Mark Millad. Uh, same thing. Oh my God, it's Mark Millad. He directed the previous one as well. It was written by Dave Hill, which I found a tough time finding any information about him. It turns out this guy was the Double D's personal assistant on the set for these last few seasons. Hmm. And he got this gig. Uh, there's an interview in Variety Magazine from August 2014. Uh, where the Double Ds were recounting his history, and he says, we have this assistant named Dave Hill, said Benioff and Weiss. I don't know if they said that in unison, like uh, binars or what, but Probably. You know, this is what, uh-huh. I'm, just, I'm just reporting on what Variety reported. One day last summer, he walked into her office and said, you know that kid, Ollie, whose family gets massacred by the Wildlings? The one who runs the Castle Black and let them know the Wildlings are nearby? Yeah. Well, said Dave, doesn't it make sense that he'd stay at Castle Black and become a Night's Watch recruit? What else is he going to do? You're right, we said. That does make sense. And what if during the battle for Castle Black, he's the one that ends up killing Ygritte? This year, Dave Hill is a writer (laughs) on the show. So apparently they're so impressed by this guy's uh, chops that they gave him an episode to write, and that was this episode. And I think he did a hell of a job. Good idea, kid. We're going to put you in the writer's room. Yeah, see? Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, uh, this is his first screen credit. Okay, cool. Well, not, not a half bad job. No, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. All right, let's get into the recap. Uh, before we do, I want to talk about the title sequence because we had a new location. Oh, yeah, we did. Dorn, weirdly named. It's like they don't say the north when they go into Captain Winterfell. <laughs> I mean, Dorn is a goddamn region. Okay. I believe what they're showing us is the capital of Sunspear because ah. uh, it has the spear with a, a snake crawling up it, which I thought was mm. cool. But the the other thing is this: sh- the way they're doing this map reveal is really confusing mm-hmm. because I, I the way the old stuff worked... You know, like, north was north, and then you swope over to sea, and you can kind of see where things laid out. But now they kind of have this clockwise rotation that starts at King's Landing, like at the 9 o'clock position, and the narrow sea is in the middle. And then we sweep up to Winterfell, and then to the Wall, and then over to Bravos, and then down to Marine, and then back across the narrow sea to the little tiny peninsula at the end of Westeros, which is Dorne. Uh, so just... By the time you're over in Essos, remember that now what's up is, na- is south, and you're actually yeah. sweeping down south. Um, yeah, it's really strange. I don't know why they don't... Th- that's such a useful way to kind of s- 
center everyone in the world and kind of show where it's in the map. And I don't know why they're, it seems like they're doing these weird swooping camera moves that are, cause I laid that out to you and you're like, get the hell out. Yeah. It didn't make any sense. You said, Oh, that they're actually going North now when it looks like they're going South or whatever. And I'm uh-huh. like that. Okay. I guess if you know where this stuff is, but I didn't get that from the, intro. I should have asked you to draw a map of what you think <laughs> on the <laughs> whiteboard. And we could have taken yeah. a picture of it, but Oh, well, <laughs> everyone couldn't laughed at Jim. That's always oh, well. fun. All right, let's get into the recap. Some boat stealing. Uh, I'm going to call it renting a boat. Ah. Yeah? Or maybe a a, a forceful <laughs> negotiation for the boat's price. Okay. Yeah, jo- Jorah. Guy wakes up. This is worth more than two dragons and a stag? <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, yeah, jo- Jorah buys a boat from a man in Volantis, and he takes off a Tyrion. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, you know, and, and by buying, I mean he knocks him out and drops a couple coins on his chest. Uh, that That was really funny. I don't, there, there's a lot of entertaining stuff in this episode. Too. I also just liked, and second watch, I noticed that Jorah had like staked him to the beach with a sword, and then when he came over to get Tyrion after he negotiated a price of the boat, Tyrion was like frantically trying to. Oh yeah, to get his. And then hands like, loose. what was Tyrion's end game there? You know, I don't know why you need your hands to run. Well, maybe he's got his legs tied too, and he needs to get probably, his hands free to untie. Probably, okay. but also you're a dwarf, and it's the sand dunes. I don't think you're going to outrun Longshanks over here anytime soon. Yeah, probably not. But you gotta, you know, you gotta try at least, Tyrion. Uh, then we go over to Bronn and Jamie in their boat. And, Much bigger uh, boat. Yes, Bronn's question, questioning Jamie about where they're going, what they're doing, um, and he says, "You know, we're going to Dorne to rescue Marcella." And he thinks it's a pretty bad idea for Jamie to have come here himself. It seems like a pretty bad idea. Pretty recognizable, and he's a shitty fighter. He is at yeah. this point. He is, and I like later on how he tries to disguise himself at least a little bit by putting a glove on. Mm, right. So he's not just, oh, there's the one-handed man. Yeah, with the gold hand. Who could that uh-huh. be? <laughs> he's taking a page, but he does, a little, you know, him and Tyrion have a lot in common uh, as far as keeping a low profile. Definitely. Bef- I also like, before they got into this part, how they uh, sailed past the uh, Tarth, which is Brienne's home, the Sapphire oh, Island. Okay. And uh, Jamie had a wistful look on his face. Mm-hmm. A very subtle way to show that connection between the two characters without having them so, share a screen. So he's still thinking about her. I think so. One way or another here. I think so. All right. He's also thinking about what a shit Tyrion is. You know, he's, as we discussed in the instant cast, he's not super on board with the idea that Tyrion killed Tywin. Yeah. I, I was kind of surprised by that. Frankly. I, yeah, I, I, I've... Yeah, I guess that's surprise is a good way to put it. I kind of thought that maybe Jamie would be less surprised. And it's hard for me to separate my view of, you know, Jamie in the book versus Jamie in the show because there are some subtle differences between their motivations and and how things went between him and Tyrion. So mm-hmm. I with with show Jamie, I was surprised to see him being that kind of bitter about the whole situation. Yeah. Um, it really, I'm, I'm imagining that some point they're going to have to meet back up. Like, I can't imagine that they put that in the show and say, you know, I'm going to cut him in two and then I'll give him your regards if there's no reason for it. Well, you know, it's going nowhere. That seems like it'd be at least a mildly interesting scene if we ever get there. I would think so. All right. Cersei meets with the small council, the governor of, I mean, the master of coin, uh, says the Iron Bank has called in uh, a lot of their debt, one-tenth of their debt, mm-hmm. and they can't afford that. Which is and, amazing. 
you can't pay off one tenth of the crown's <laughs> debts. Not even half of it. Sure. Uh, yeah, they're they're in a lot of debt. Sure. Um, he suggests that you know the Tyrell family could lend you money. Cersei turns that down and then says, "No, I want you to go negotiate with the Iron Bank personally, and I'm sending you with Marin Trant to go do that." What do you think of the comedy stylings of Mace Tyrell? <laughs> I find him lovably doofusy. I don't know. Kind of a little like drunk uncle. Yeah. yeah. I'll give your my regards to the Titan of Bravos. Nobody's finding it funny. You don't pay himself. if you don't pay back the crown, I'll have to be very stern with my daughter. <laughs> I mean come on, yeah, man. It's silly. Um I, I have a lot of questions here because clearly Cersei has a plan. For it him. seems so. Uh is her plan I wonder if her plan is to buy some time from the Iron Bank or if it if she actually wants him to go over there and negotiate a better rate or whatever from the bank or if she's going to potentially have Marin Trant kill him uh either on the way there or on the way back more likely um and use his death for some purpose. I now it could be tied in with the idea that she's you know, by proxy, kidnapped Loras this episode. Uh-huh. Um, I, I don't know. It seems like all-out war on the Tyrell family right now, and that it doesn't does. bode well for Mace. But we want to know, like, how dark does it get? Is she actually... Because yeah. we know Sir Marin Trant has a checkered history. He's not... Uh, you know, he, he seems to be on the cowardly, skulky, blackguard end of the Kingsguard. Oh, yeah. You mm-hmm. know, more of a blackguard than a Kingsguard. Um and so the the hint of a threat there to Mace's life. Plus, we from what I, I we felt see like it was of him less of a and, and what an idiot goes. he is, it seems unlikely that Cersei would send him over there to seriously barter for them. Because I, I think you're right. Because I think he next get a rave and be like, "Yeah, we're calling all the debt back. This is your master of coin. <laughs> we're calling them all this back. This is the guy you've got running. Yeah, no, we're we're cutting. We have no faith. Cutting our losses. No here. confidence. Yeah." <laughs> You guys are bankrupt now. <laughs> uh, the other thing is this comment about, you know, the small council getting smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. Cersei Knight saying not small enough. Is she trying to consolidate power for herself? I think it's a subtle threat to, to Pycelle. Because yeah. he, he seems to be, uh, you know, hold on to your ass. Mm-hmm. Grandmeister Pycelle might be the best advisor she has left. And he's trying to subtly, like... It's all fun and games when we're kind of running shit and taking advantage of this and being rich and powerful, but you're taking it too far, lady. Yeah. And Cersei just reminds him that, hey, small council get smaller. But to be so bold as as to say that to him, I I get that there's nothing he can really do if she wants him gone right. in some capacity. But I also feel like Cersei is purposely doing this with the small council, appointing people where they don't belong, um, sure. sending people on missions that are probably death sentences and appointing uh Kyburn as kind of the one person that she actually wants on the small council but he's her lackey yeah, absolutely yeah so i she seems like she's consolidating power i don't yeah. know where that'll go but i'm kind of curious myself i also like the the symmetry between last season iron bank loaning money to stannis and i kind of feel like i wonder if there's a charter that like you know 10,000 gold dragons to Stannis. We need 10,000 gold dragons back. It's like, that yeah. would make it even a bigger fuck you. Uh-huh. Like, not only are we... <laughs> You're paying for someone to come and sack your Yeah, your yeah, city. I love that. I mean, again, that's something I've entirely made up in my head, but I love that that angle of the Iron Bank. 
They're like, yeah, yeah don't pay your debts. See where it gets you. <laughs> to be shame. You got a nice King's Landing here. Be ashamed if it got busted up, wouldn't it? At the very least, the Iron Bank is playing both sides. Yeah. You know, they're they're hedging their bets here. I like it. Uh, Cersei meets with the High Sparrow to appoint him as the leader of what she calls the Faith Militant, a faction that I had not heard of before, but apparently has been around for a very long time. Well, um, it hasn't well, been around for a very long yes, time. Yes, it was around a long time ago, took a little a hiatus, and right. is coming back now in full force. Yeah. Uh, then the Sparrows immediately go out and start killing the Sinners. Yeah. And uh, they also capture Loras. Right. Which... I think everybody understands the implication of that, including Marjorie in the next scene, but we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, they, you know, here are the dongs you requested, sir. Dude. Front and center. The very next episode is as if they I listened speak, to our podcast. I want to speak for the ladies and the gay bros. <laughs> I am not happy with this No, no, dick. you're right. <laughs> like, in this episode alone, we get the glorious display of Melisandre, full frontal. Uh-huh. Yep. And they get these shriveled... Mm-hmm. Raisinette, old dancer dicks. Yeah, this is this is unjust. Uh, the dick count stands at Hodor and these two randos. Mm-hmm. I I I would be insulted if I was a lady uh, or or a lusty gay man. All right. Well, at least they're they're not afraid to show some dick, right? And they do show some shapely male figures. To be fair, yeah, yeah. But you know, I don't know. Maybe I guess maybe it's it's our fault for having external genitalia. Because when we say full frontal, it's not like they're spreading their legs and like, ah, 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 you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, you get some bush, you might yeah. get a little mound. Most of the actual genitals are hidden. Like if these guys tucked, women. Like, like, like if, if Loris would tuck his dick, mm-hmm. and pr- I'm sure they would show that, right? Probably. They'd buffalo bill that. So mm-hmm. maybe it's just our fault for having the, ex- it's just too explicit. Okay, yeah. We're rocking out their cocks out and it's a, it's biology's fault, not the showrunners. <laughs> Fair. All right, Marjorie goes to Tommen. Is it? Because no, it no, sounds totally insane. Not. Okay. I'm, I'm humoring All right. you. Thank you. I uh, appreciate that. Marjorie goes to Tommen to tell him that Cersei is holding her brother prisoner, and Tommen promises to get him free. And so he goes to Cersei to ask for uh, his release. And instead, she says, no, no, go ask the High Spirit yourself. I'm not holding him, which is silly. And Tommen, and poor Tommen. you know, if Tommen were any older and more capable of making this argument, yeah. he would shut Cersei down here in a second. But yeah. You know, he's a kid. What's and, he going to do? And I just felt bad for him because, you know, as as good as he felt last episode, <laughs> he feels just completely between this rock and a hard place. He mm-hmm. wants desperately to make Marjorie happy. He's already, you know, wrote written checks that his ass can't ca- cash. You know, mm-hmm. like apparently he'd made promises about shipping his mother off to Casterly Rock. He can't do that. I mean, he could, but he lacks... I don't know. It's complicated. And... You think about what you would do if you were Tommen in this situation versus, you know, I, I don't know. I just really felt for the guy. He's in a, an impossible situation. Yeah, he honestly, Tommen feels like a good kid. And yes. I think he does want his mother to be happy. And if his mother tells him I wouldn't be happy at Casterly Rock, this is my home now. I don't know that he would feel right shipping her off, regardless of the promise that he has made to anyone. Yep. So I think that's why she's still around. A little bit of guilt there. And he's he's young. Part. He's like, what, 14, 15? Yeah, and Cersei's a fairly intimidating person. Sure. Trying to stand up to her. Sure. Even when you're the king, if you're a kid, it's tough. Yeah. Um, especially since you weren't even king, and you didn't even have any designs on being a king yeah. a year ago. You expected not to be. Yeah, you're going to be a <laughs> prince, and you know you, you were still playing with your kittens and all that. But, you know, I don't, I don't it's, it, I, like I said, I feel bad for him. Yeah, speaking of feeling bad for him, he then goes to 
the High Sparrow, oh. um, where he's staying, and tries to talk to him, but they turn him away because he's praying. Uh, or so they say, you seem to have an idea that uh, su- you suggested during the Instacast maybe he wasn't praying. I, I It's a theory. It's a okay. theory that perhaps the High Sparrow has been taken over by radical elements, because... Mm. Otherwise, we're left with a guy who's... I mean, again, I keep liking the High Sparrow. I like the scene with him and Cersei. Um, yeah. He seems willing to take advantage of cert, you know, whatever Cersei's offering. But he doesn't seem evil. And he seemed to express contrition about the way they went about exposing the sinner in their midst And that earlier. was just a beating. That was just a beating. Now they've got the Faith Militant, and they're just rampaging through King's Landing. Yeah. I, I just wonder uh, how much of this is because why wouldn't this high Septon see the king? Like, why would they be that aggressive about protecting him? I don't know. I mean, how seriously do they take their prayer? <laughs> well, that's well, I mean, obviously, they're carving seven sided stars on their fucking forehead. Um, the, their religion is a pretty serious thing for them. I do. You, do you, I, I do find it hard to buy that just the the guys praying would be enough yeah because the other thing is i don't know what the size and strength of the faith militant and like how far yeah. their deputies and also how can you tell the official versus the unofficial but i kind of feel like between the the lannister house guard the gold cloaks and the king's guard they could just clear house if they wanted to yeah in fact i think that the king's guard could have taken every one of those dudes on a step they got hammers king's they, guard's got plate mail and yeah. swords yeah Serious they're gonna kick swords. their asses up and down i it's clear to me, so yes, I mean, the reason that doesn't happen there is because Tommen is too nice, doesn't want to see these people killed. Well, not only that, but he's also like at the Great Sept. I mean, that was something, he probably remembers how shocking it was that Joffrey had Ned Stark beheaded. And it'd, it'd be essentially like the Pope executing someone in St. Peter's Cathedral. Like, yeah. it's just, it's, this is a house of worship. Uh huh. God damn it. Um, <laughs> So then he's already feeling uneasy about it, and then the crowd starts up with the bastard abomination, which I wonder if he even knows. Like, how, as protective as Cersei is of people, I wonder if he even knows what the hell is going on. Like That's a fair question. How aware he's been, like, you know, when because he's paraded through the streets, and it's all, oh, Queen Marjorie, King Tom, and this might yeah. be the first he's experienced that. And it shows how, you know, word is really getting around. It's becoming more common knowledge mm-hmm. about... uh what's going on in that family but uh, you know you can see that this is a runaway situation that each passing day that faith militant is going to have a stronger and stronger stronghold on the common people Mm -hmm. which has always been the lannister's weak point anyway it is and it's so uh, there is a if if you're going with a theory that the high sparrow has been imprisoned here and these faith militant are doing this against his will Mm mm-hmm I don't know that it would be out of character for Game of Thrones to not show us that because they didn't show us um, the High Septon before being thrown into prison. Sure. It just went right from like, oh, I'm so angry about this. What are you going to do about it? To conversation with the High Sparrow. Well, and also it could be that Cersei's is bluffing. I mean, you don't, I mean, she could, she, Cersei will, she could lie about him being in the dungeons. She could have oh, shipped yeah. him off. Oh, yeah. No, there's that too. You know, she could have shipped him off some other way or across Essos where he could whore out the rest of yeah, his life. Yeah, I mean, I guess I took it for... I, did I took too. it at her word True. after seeing this episode sure, sure. that he was gone because he was absent. Yeah. Um. Anyway, let, let's move on. Tommen goes back to his room and tells Marjorie that he couldn't talk to the High Sparrow. So Marjorie leaves to send word to her family. 
Uh, I think she's going to send word that I'm coming and then head off. Yeah, because it sounds like she's point. just going to send a raven. It's like, okay, cool. But then when he goes, you're coming back, she says, I need to be with my family. Yeah. Well, okay. Her dad is headed to Bravos. Her brother is in a black cell uh-huh. somewhere. Her family is her grandmother, right? Her gra- yeah, so, well, I don't know. Like, that's an ambiguous... I'm saying that's an ambiguous statement. She can okay. say, I'm staying here in King's Landing because I need to support my brother, or I need to get huh. back home to strategize with my grandma. Okay. I don't know how much I believe all that, but I'm just saying that Or it maybe is... she wants her grandmother to come there. Also, her strong... Her, her strongest card other than her grandmother, seems to be staying within King Tommen's good graces. Yeah. And flouncing out is, I don't know. I, I felt like she was already, I mean, because, again, Tommen's a child, but I felt like she was already kind of uh, a poor performance for his behalf. Mm-hmm. You know, like a little condescending towards him. Yeah, if he were any more observant and uh, slightly older, he would have noticed it. Yeah, and again, like she she need I feel like she needs that connection with the king to have any hope of standing against Cersei. You're right. Um, but obviously she's shocked at how quickly Cersei's moved and to be fair, this is the nuclear option Cersei's bringing <laughs> out. Oh yeah. Like it seems like this is a bad idea uh to just be busting up all these high lords brothels and you know, all these very important, you know, it's always kind of been something they've hinted at that the little finger caters to the rich and powerful and their perversions. Yeah. Well, you're essentially declaring war on the upper class in the, in this scene. Yeah. One of the things I find the most interesting about this series of scenes here is how Cersei seems to think that she can do what she wants deny that she's doing it even though everyone and all the evidence clearly points to she is doing it i mean when when you go and you look at the people in the streets being massacred by this the uh faith militant you see the king the the actual troops of the city looking on not doing anything turning their backs all that sort of stuff i i can't help but imagine that the people see that too the people understand that this is this is sanctioned by the state here Sure. So, like, her, her, well, I had nothing to do with this. No, it's super... I'm not the one holding it. It, it doesn't, <laughs> I, I'm not saying this is not plausible, yeah. but it irks me that something like that could happen and not have any repercussions. And I don't think it's going to have no repercussions. Yeah. I think eventually this two-faced sort of deal is going to, to turn on her. No. Yeah, I mean it's it's that's like real life. You know, you I'm sure you can think of examples where there's been people that think they're smarter than they really are and like they're like, "Oh wow, this passes for clever for you." And it's almost like you pity them. She's just she's flaunting it like yeah. like she's got everybody beat when yeah. she doesn't. She has the upper hand currently. Yeah. But by re- unveiling your motives and revealing sure. it to people, you give them the upper hand. And again, I just has, I just can't underline how what a terrible idea it seems to arm religious fanatics yes. as a almost separate but equal power structure to the crown. Yeah, but one that she thinks she controls, but I I doubt it. Right, and you know, like I would, it'd be curious to see what Tywin and Tyrion would have to say about this as students of history. Oh, yeah. Because Cersei, not a student of history. <laughs> no. Like, I'm kind of impressed that she even knew what the faith militant was if it happened 200 years ago. Yeah. But maybe you also wonder, like, is this Kyburn whispering in her ear? Like, what is his game? 
Good question. I don't know. Because we I, other say... Than, other than resurrecting the mountain, I don't know. We say that she is... He is her lackey, but... Cersei's just so dumb and easy to manipulate in her way yeah. that you wonder what his end game is. No, I think I've said before in the podcast that he has some other motive. Mm. Uh, whether it's directly opposed to Cersei, I don't know, or whether he just needs some sort of access to ingredients and uh, the mountain being one of those ingredients. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure either, but we'll find out. I'm sure. Uh, Stannis' wife points out that he likes John a little too much. And like the son, kind of like the son that she should have given him, mm. but, you know, he got a daughter instead, and she's kind of feeling shitty about that, which is interesting because given the scene later where uh, Shireen is just, you know, bored, as mm-hmm. she says, I could definitely see her mom saying all sorts of horrible shit about oh, her. Oh, I mean, yeah. To her face. That's like, you know, when she's, in that scene, she said... uh I know that mom wanted to leave me behind. And she's like, why do you think that? Mm-hmm. Because he, she said that. It's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Stan is like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> no, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a good scene. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting also that uh, Stannis, when she called him a bastard and all this, he just looked at her and goes, well, that, that wasn't Ned Stark's way. Um, and then she goes, I've given you nothing but weakness and deformity. And then Melisandre, because that's the thing, is like she's always been up Melisandre's ass. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like there was a little bit of break in that alliance that she did not really like the way she swept in there and basically shit all over her anti-Shireen uh, hate-mongering and kind of turned yeah. the conversation more positive about it? I think there's a little bit of a battle there between them, and I've felt that in previous seasons, See, just, I- just a twinge of it. Oh, really? Because I've always felt that she's almost insane in the way she's just like, whatever you need, Melisandre. Sometimes she is. My husband's penis? Sure. My <laughs> yeah. my uncle to burn at the stake? Whatever. Our meister to save Princess Shireen's life? Whatever you need. I mean... Yeah, I forget exactly what it was that made me think that, but there was a slight twinge of it, but overtly, yeah, she's she's very much uh-huh. Melisandre. Ra rah, rah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, in this scene, I think you're right. There's a little bit going on there. Uh, and Melisandre asks Stannis not to leave her behind when he rides south in this scene as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he doesn't plan to. Uh, she is, uh, putting a little bit of cold water on him too, because he says, I need you ostensibly as a conversation, continuing the conversation about, Hey, don't let the battle of the Blackwater part two happen. Mm-hmm. And, but it's clearly also a sexual thing, right? She says, all you need is my faith, my lord. Yeah, I'm not sure about Stannis' sexuality. Does he have any? Like, I don't know. You see, like I said, I feel like he's clearly got, you know, you've mentioned it, that part of, you've mentioned being annoyed that Melisandre's got him wrapped around her little finger. I think not a small part. I mean, part of that is the power that he gets from her. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think a part of it is that, yeah, he's, I mean, look at Solis, look at Melisandre. Sure. You know, look at the fact that, like, Melisandre seems insane, too, but her insanity is like sexual blood magic. Selyse's mm-hmm. insanity is keeping jars of deformed fetuses on display. There is a winner All here. Right, sure. <laughs> I'll take the former. Yes. Uh, so then we go to Sam and John, and he's signing a bunch of letters to the Lords of the Land, which includes Roose Bolton. Mm. Uh, they're requesting men for the wall. I have a little bit of a problem here. Okay. With him signing this letter to Roose Bolton. Okay. What good are men that you cannot trust when it comes down to it? I, I feel like whatever Roose would send, John would be looking over his shoulder saying, are these men actually here to help? 
or here to undermine me. There's a bit of that, but on the other hand, almost every recruit that the Black Brothers get is seen through that lens. Because no that one is, wants to be there. That is They're true. all, yeah. you know, some type of criminal. So, you know, I mean, look at what happened to the old bear. Like, mm-hmm. you, there's like a little element of the that in being the Lord Commander anyway. You're right. I think, though, that I would be worried about explicit orders from Roos to kill me if mm. I were John. Well, it's a <laughs> mi- mildly interesting hypothesis. Okay. Anyway, I... I bet that this is a moment that the book readers have been waiting for when Melisandre turns around at the end of this scene and says, you know nothing, Jon Snow. That's also mildly I, I interesting. I can't fucking imagine that people weren't just cheering. <laughs> what did So what did you think of that? Like, she goes in there to seduce him. It's creepy as hell. Why is she, and talking about the power in his blood, mm-hmm. what, what do you make of all that? <sighs> blood magic, man. Yeah? It's blood magic. I uh-huh. mean... I don't know what her what her ends are here, huh. but she clearly wants to seduce John. Sure. Obviously, uh, I don't know. It's it's very strange, especially when paired with that. You know nothing, Jon Snow. How does she know about that line? How does she know about Egret at all? That's a very good question. Um, yeah, I'm a little worried for John, and I'm I'm super glad that he shuts her down in this scene. Sure, I was kind of surprised. Uh, I, I, you know, I thought that he was going to shut her down, but then the way they played it out, I was thinking like, oh man, maybe you know, he's starting to cup her boob and he's feeling up her, uh, uh, slick as a baby seal spot. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, all we needed is torment in there to go har har and we'd be, we'd be off to the races. I, uh, but then, yeah, he, he brought it back. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be interesting what happens up there at the wall. That's for sure. Uh, Shireen's bored. And she's feeling bad about herself because her mother's a horrible person. And Stannis tells her the story of how she got grayscale and how he decided not to send her away, but instead find a cure for her. This scene is gold because... It's touching, yeah. You see a man like Stannis who you can tell it cost him inner reserves to show affection. And, you know, he bought this goddamn wooden doll... To do something nice for his daughter and put it in a cradle, and she rubbed her cheek with it, and then got infected by the grayscale. I mean, what that must have done to Stannis? Well, I mean, obviously he combed the world for healers and uh-huh. and the against all advice and yeah. and and risking a lot, risking yeah. the lives of many other people. So, and a lot of this is couched in terms of like, well, you're my daughter, so I, you know, of course I'm going to take care of you. But there's also just it seeming a lot of affection. For yeah. his daughter, something that Celise can't bring herself to see or find in herself to feel the same way, too. Yeah, this scene actually changes my opinion. Uh, it it reinforces some of the opinions that and thoughts that I had about Stannis and changes it in other ways. I, I didn't realize that he had this kind of softer side to him I, um, as as regards his daughter. I Yeah, I mean, this I, I just thought it was a great scene when he says, you do not belong across the world with the bloody stoneman. You're the Princess Shireen of House Baratheon and you're my daughter. I got a little teared up. <laughs> sure. And then the awkward hug, I did the same thing. And it was just, uh, it made Shireen so happy too. Um, yeah, I think it's a much needed scene for Stannis. It, it, and I think there's another level in, in which this scene works. And it shows how competent and how capable of a person Stannis is. You know, he, when Shireen goes over to that table and starts fucking with what is only, what is clearly a battle plan. Sure. Uh, and moving pieces and all that shit, he's very patient with her he does not say put that shit down or anything like that 
He waits for her to finish. He walks over, and while having a conversation puts and telling back. the story, just puts it back mindlessly. He's mm-hmm. he he knows the battle plan so well. Mm-hmm. He's got all this in his head. It shows that he is, you know, at the same time he's caring for his daughter, he's also got a lot of stuff going on in his head militarily. And and it reinforces the point that they make about him being the the best military. Leader I was going to say Westeros. the same thing. Like that's a throwaway line, but that little yeah. detail all comes together, and it's just great storytelling. I agree. Uh, that you know they use this little throwaway moment in a scene that's already very effective <laughs> to to sell yeah. that point. And I, you know, between him's interaction with John and his daughter there, I just I, I, I I'm amazed at how well they're doing with kind of rehabilitating Stannis because I think a lot of show watchers don't have much of an opinion of him one way or another. I mean, okay. clearly you didn't. You no, were like, I, fuck Stannis. Yeah, yeah, I really but didn't know much he, about him. It felt like he was being railroaded more than choosing his own destiny here. But suddenly he's a three-dimensional character. Yeah, in a, in a couple of short scenes. It's pretty incredible. Anyway, Sansa's in the crypts, and she's lighting candles when Littlefinger shows up and tells her that he's going to King's Landing. And there's there's more to this scene, but I'm sure it will come out as we talk about it. Um, Littlefinger here, I, I think it's clear now. We we had an email last episode that um, was questioning who might know about Stannis. Uh, I think it's clear now that Littlefinger knows about Stannis. Uh, he's he's very clear that he's going to try and take the North, and that Sansa needs to be there when that happens. You know what's awesome? Whatever the outcome is, is we have no way of knowing how he knows that. But I don't question it in the slightest. No. no, like how the hell does he know about what's going on at Castle Black? But yeah, I just assume yeah. he's got probably one of the Black Brothers in his pocket. That's like you know, Ravens on the Sly or something, probably. And he yeah. knows the guy. You know, obviously, uh, you know him being the finest military commander um, is just from his resume. But he knows the state of his army and his intentions to march before. I mean, it's it's impressive. They're getting a lot of mileage out of the kind of character that. We know Littlefinger to be. Yeah, that's a real trick because a lot of other shows, I'd be like, how the fuck? But I just <laughs> just buy it because it's Littlefinger. Yep. Uh, so Stannis wants to... Stannis somehow needs Sansa, I think, to unite the lords against the Lannisters of the Lords of the North. I think that's clear in this scene. It would certainly be easier. But uh, another thing that I think the episode before this does really well is... Um, they show that the the lords won't follow Stannis alone. They're actually loyal to John. That that letter comes in. Stannis says, "Here, look at this. Uh-huh. Uh, they're loyal to you. I need you to lead these people." Right now, if he has another Stark on sure. his side, with the, the actual last claiming name of loyalty, Stark. yeah, yeah, that might actually work better, if not at least as well. Sure. And clearly, you know, they've been saying that you know that that scene where uh, the little Mormont girls send the response, um, the uh, little the old lady that said, "Welcome the back the winter, welcome home." Yeah, the North remembers. They're mm-hmm. all selling us on the fact that yes, it's all good that you were brothers of Ned's best friend, but the North are not going to follow anyone but their own. Yeah, so Sansa could be an important pe- uh, uh, cog in this wheel. I think so. What do you think about the the story time about Lyanna Stark and the attorney at Harrenhal and? you know, Rhaegar versus Selmy. There's a lot of stories of Rhaegar this episode. Selmy tells one. Littlefinger tells one. Uh, they're down here in the crypts of Winterfell. What do you make of all that? Or do you, do you, do you, I don't really know what to make of it. Is this just historical context or detail or what? So far, yeah. 
All right. I, I mean, I'm sure they they aren't just doing it for the sake of telling us a story. Mm-hmm. They're they're trying to get somewhere, but I don't know where that is yet. So I'm sure we'll find out. Uh, Braun and Jamie land on the shore near Dorne, or Wait, in in Dorne on, near some city. Do you have a better handle on Littlefinger and Sansa's relationship, or what he wants from her? Is he making no, her? Little... Is he making her think that he's romantically interested in her just to take a, draw attention away from how risky a gamble it is? Like, well, I think he's creepy, but I also believe he loves me, so I don't think it's kind of like a subconscious thing. I don't think he'd really risk my life when you know we talked about it on the instant cast and whatever. This is a very bold plan. It is. It's a typically bold, and it's also not really as exactly risking Littlefinger's neck either. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But, you know, he kisses her full on the lips, and then she says significantly, next time I see you, I'll be another man's wife. And her face betrays nothing. Uh-huh. Uh, I I don't know. Littlefinger obviously has a plan. I have a hard time buying that it's just Stannis on the throne. Sure. I, I don't know what that gains him. Mm-hmm. He was prospering within the Lannister rule. There's got to be some point. bigger play that he's making. He does, he does not a guy who does small things like that. Yeah. Hmm. All right. I, I just, man, it's with Littlefinger, it could literally go anywhere. Because, and again, you know, he's, his face says a lot, but I'm not sure what. Like, you know, again, Sansa, you can't read anything from, but he gives her a very interesting look when she says that, kind of like a half smile. And I, I, I don't know. Yeah, the fact that he's playing both sides here, you know, he's talking with Roose Bolton um, he's got Stannis on the mind and trying to actively help him. But I also believe that he's possibly in love with Sansa just from a uh, reliving the glory days of Cat standpoint. Yeah, there's that element too. So, yeah. I don't know. I, there's some twisted thing going on in his head, but I don't know what it is yet. Right on. So Bron and Jamie land on the shore in Dorne, and they talk about how they want to die. And then they head toward the city, but a bunch of guards find him. Braun kills three of them. Jamie kills the other one. Uh, what do you think of the smash cut uh, to Braun looking like he's going to murder Jamie? And looking he's like just, he's going to murder getting, Jamie. He's just oh, with killing the snake. breakfast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I I didn't think anything of it other than a gag. Okay. Um, you didn't get your blood pumping a little bit? No, not okay. really. <laughs> Uh, also, Braun, I don't know what reason he would have to kill Jamie Braun if he wants any kind of payout. Braun literally cooks a snake by wrapping it around a bear sti- stick and putting it in a fire. There's mm-hmm. no skinning. There's no gutting. There's no he removal of head. Goes to town on it. Yeah. Like I've seen survival shows where they eat snakes, and it's a it's a lot different than that. I don't know if the double D's know this, but I mean, Braun, Braun's is an animal. I'm surprised he didn't eat it raw, like Tom Hanks in the second half of uh-huh. uh, Castaway, Castaway style. Sure. Um, so they talk about the ways they want to die. Bronn wants to grow old as his children squabble over his fortune, and Jamie wants to die in the arms of the woman he loves. Bronn makes a wry comment about that, you know, does that go both ways? Uh, I think Jamie's certainly questioning that at the moment, mm-hmm. and you know, that's kind of why he's here. Mm-hmm. So, good line from Bronn. And I, I can't tell if Bronn understands how poignant of a remark that is. Or if he's just, you know, making a a dry observation and it hits home with Jamie unknowingly. I don't know because he says when, when he's talking about rescuing his niece, he boat. says, your niece. Like, yeah. I feel like, and and so 
Tyrion certainly knew about it, mm-hmm. and we know that Braun is Tyrion's confidant and kind of like inside man. It seems likely that Braun knows, and it's I almost got this irritation from Braun that like I know, and you gotta know that I know, and you're still maintaining you the facade with me, like almost like it's an insult. So he's just gonna keep dropping these hands. I, I kind of feel like until that. Jamie goes, like, fine, fuck, yes, you're right, <laughs> right. That's what he wants. Like I can't believe you're playing. It, it's, he's, you know, it's like, well, you know, be, do whatever. But I feel like that this is costing a little respect in his eyes. Like I don't know, if Braun's ever inclined to respect Jamie Lannister, but he kind of, I think he respected him as a man of action. But this mm-hmm. is a little weak. I not, there's, I don't know. That's the impression I got. You think maybe he's afraid that if he just comes out and says like braun is afraid that if he says hey look i know about this uh don't deny it that jamie will just deny it and it will it will go on he, like jamie I, has to be ready to tell him so yeah i don't know if they're ever going to talk about it i don't know or does braun even care really I, I think he cares but it's to the extent of what it tells him about his relationship with jamie yeah and probably what he can get out of it and you know again what is you know he's as close to tyranny as he was with anyone but we saw exactly where those loyalties began and end so i don't know yeah. it's it's not really annoyed and it's not certainly like a feeling betrayal but it's something that he's feeling there yeah so during this fight scene i like that even jamie is kind of surprised when he grabs this sword sure with his steel hand uh-huh. i really like that moment <laughs> he kind of looks at it and goes oh that's right grab my sword mm-hmm. kill this guy uh that was cool and i like how <laughs> He can only take one guy who didn't look very slowed, I got to say, by falling off that horse. He still looked pretty badass. But the fight on the side of the dune was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. And I thought they did a good job of showing that, like, Jamie knows how to move. Mm-hmm. Like, he seems so inept when he had the sword in his hand. But, like, when he's falling down the hill, he's fairly athletic and acrobatic about getting to his feet. Uh-huh. It's just he doesn't know how to fight with his offhand. Sure. It, so, it would be super awkward. I thought they, they do a lot of interesting touches with the choreography to tell us what type of fighter a person is. And I thought, you know, there's enough, more good stunt work there selling mm-hmm. part of a character uh, fairly well. Um, there's another thing. Did you think there's anything thematically interesting about Jamie saying we are afraid of sharks and the Dornishman saying there are no sharks in Dorn? Are we supposed to take that mm-hmm. as... You know, the things in Dorne aren't as schemey. I mean, as they are in King's Landing. I, I don't know. Although, they get, the next scene is a literal scheme <laughs> and plot against the legitimate ruler of Dorne. So maybe I'm reading too much in that. But I thought, it's like, where the fuck did that come from? Was it just a joke? Or am I digging too deep? I don't know. Braun looks at him, too, at the same yeah, time. He kind there of looks was back and like, he's like, I thought... Maybe it's more like, shut the fuck up. You I, don't know I've how I've got to... this. You're Jamie fucking Lannister. Yes. Don't open your mouth. You have never <laughs> gone undercover in your in your life. Yeah. So, golden boy, just shut up. You That's know? what I felt like it was. Okay, you're showing, right. showing how out of, his, out of depth he was. There. Sure. Uh, so, next scene, Ilaria recruits the Sand Snakes for her cause, which is to avenge Oberon by killing Marcella, mm-hmm. it, it appears. Um, she finds out that Jamie Lannister is in Dorne and realizes they need to work quickly. What did you think of the actual reveal of the Sand Snakes? It's cool. I like the spear through the head. Yeah. It shows that at least one of them is competent. It seems like uh, they're all... Well, I mean, Nim's got that whip. I mean, that's the thing. It seems like they all have their signature weapon. The, yeah. uh, I think her name is... Uh, uh, the youngest? I don't Ty- know I her think name. her name is Tyrina or something like that. Okay. Or Ty- She's actually the daughter of... 
Alaria, right? She's the one that comes up and hugs. Yeah, and these, says, "Mom." These two older Mama, ones yeah. are not. I don't believe they're um, just Oberyn's daughters. Yeah. Okay. So, and she's got the double daggers. So it looks like you've got you know they all got their like little weapon. And I mm-hmm. I saw that there. It seems like um, a little dissatisfaction about how Fox Force Five these girls in t- turned out to be. Like you know, Bar's got the chest armor and the spear, and this other uh-huh. girl's an expert at the whip, and it's kind of like a little jokey. I didn't get that. I thought they were cool. Yeah, I I didn't seem also, very jokey. I don't know what books they're reading because this is kind of like straight out of their characterization from the books, too. Hmm. I, you know. I, I felt like it was a good touch to have somebody working with the spear because, mm. you know, Oberyn fought with that, that spear. somebody. Yeah. 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 And it seems like maybe she was the most on board with this war, period. Yeah. Um, the other girls were kind of quiet and not reluctant to, to start this war, but she seemed really gung-ho. Yeah, and she also, tells a big flowery story. About that it. big story about the gods let us choose our weapons, tears or spears, mm-hmm. um, which sounds like a throwback '80s cover band. Yep, but uh, <laughs> I it's also great because it sh- this show's been very good about showing us the strength and weaknesses of both approaches. Like mm. Brienne and this Obara can be very stereotypically manly and masculine in their war efforts, and then you've got. Mar- Marjorie and Sansa that are better at playing the other side, the, the you know the other feminine side of the game, and then you've got people like Danny who seem to be very able to fuse fuse both of those approaches together. Mm-hmm. So I liked it as a mission statement for the show, and just as an introduction, the 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 tears of spear speech was pretty good. Okay, and it's also a very badass Oberyn thing to say, just to ride up and like throw a spear at young girls and be like, "You can cry like your mother, you can ride with me." <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, Tyrion annoys Jorah until he takes the gag off of him. They're they're out in a boat on their way to uh, to Marine, and he deduces exactly who Jorah is and what he's doing, and he finds the whole thing kind of funny. Jorah doesn't find it nearly as funny. Can I ask you what Tyrion was trying to sing at him? Because it's got to be either the Lannister know. theme or the Bear and the Maiden Fair. I and Probably. I, I couldn't match it the either. But he was clearly no, trying know. to sing at him to something to annoy him. Yeah, he's just annoying him until he took the... the I, I don't know, man. He should have got a backhand before he took the gag off, frankly. <laughs> like... A warning I, back in. What do you? What good do you think taking a gag off of Tyrion is going to do for you? Uh, to be fair, Jorah it'll get doesn't... him to stop humming, but it will not get him to stop annoying you. Sure. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess uh, you know Jorah doesn't know Tyrion like we do. I guess so. I guess so. Uh, I I do find it slightly menacing where he's talking about you know is she going to execute me and forgive you or I think the opposite is just as likely. That's a little scary for Jorah. And it seems like neither one of them contemplate the idea that maybe you know, she'll, <laughs> she'll be like, why not both? Uh-huh. Either to let them live or to a double execution. Sure. But hmm. good nah, point. it's a good scene. And again, I like seeing uh, Tyrion kind of Sherlock the whole situation. Yeah. So Sir Barristan tells Danny that her brother used to basically busk for fun. He'd go <laughs> out in the streets and he would sing and people would throw money and then he'd take that money and sometimes donate it, sometimes use it to get drunk. Got a dollar. You got a dollar. <laughs> I so what songs do the uh, Targaryens sing? Uh, are they the same? It's the same. Yeah, it's it's uh, <laughs> the Bear and the Maiden. The Reigns of Castamere or the okay. Bear and Maiden Fair. There's only two. It's it's, it's kind of like Lego Movie. Everything's awesome. And that's what everybody yeah. enjoys. Uh, Danny enjoys this story at least, 
And then Dario comes in and says, hey, Hisdar is waiting for you, along with like 50 or 100 other people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we get a really awesome view from the pyramid, too. Yeah, we did. I was kind of blown away by that. Yeah, that's a big-ass pyramid. Like, you were up there. How long does it take you to climb to the top of that pyramid every <laughs> single fucking day if you're Danny? Uh, I don't know. I feel like it's like she gets a line <laughs> of uh, Unsullied, and it's like a bucket brigade. They just pass her ass from <laughs> uh-huh. hand to hand, and she just... Yeah. Crowd surfs up the stairs. Like being carried through the streets of King's Landing. In, in, indeed. Indeed. Okay. But uh, it's got to be hell on Barristan. I bet. Yeah, his 60-year-old knees It'd are It'd be not... like taking the stairs on the Empire State Building. Mm-hmm. All the time. Uh, Hisdar in the throne room asks Danny once again to reopen the fighting pits uh, while the Sons of the Harpy start killing people in the streets. It's fighting season. Let's get a montage there. And some of the Unsullied, including Grey Worm, are lured into a trap. And then Sir Barristan shows up, and they are able to kill all the sons in that room, but at the possible cost of both of their lives. I would say at the end of that scene that Grey Worm looks a little bit, like he's in a little bit better shape, because mm-hmm. Barristan's kind of like passed out on the floor, mm-hmm. um, and Grey Worm crawls over to him, but they both look in bad shape, man. Plus there's this whole piece of lore in the books, um, and I don't know, because honestly I was shocked. Um Shocked at the apparent death of both of these characters. Uh, but the, the dovetail in yours, there's a little piece of lore in the books about how the one of the things the slavers do when they castrate the boys is they don't do shit for antibacterial <laughs> or any kind of cleanliness. It's like okay. a bunch of the boys die at that phase because the infection and it all heals improperly and they, they die. So it's almost hmm. like a way to call the people that, can't take massive trauma and heal from it. Okay. So that might be a f- something in uh, his favor. But I think in both of these guys, like, I was looking exactly where, because I was like, well, okay, he got stabbed in the shoulder and maybe in the gut. That last sword thrust, or dagger thrust, was, like, right at the, bl- kind of like the heart area, heart-lung area. Like, that's... Yeah. And he's an old dude. Uh, It was... Yeah, Grey Worm got it in the side, so... Yeah. Like, may, uh, I think that might be survivable. Yeah, again, especially... It doesn't look like it's high enough to hit his lungs. Sure. I don't know. I mean, it's it's no joke to get stabbed in medieval times anyway. That's true. Like, if unless it's on an arm or something you can just amputate, it could be a death sentence. But mm-hmm. uh, it, if he goes out, at least he went out swinging, because yeah. I thought from the moment he unsheathed his sword to his dramatic entrance that... Uh, it was good, and I thought the stuntman that they got looked... I tried to freeze frame a couple times, and I could tell it's clearly not that guy, but they did a very good job at, um, you know, selling us on it. Mm-hmm. And he moved... I mean, it just yeah. looked like a badass. Both of them did in their own way. I, I agree. I was not expecting that, but they did a good job with it. And they left just a harvest of corpses. It's knee-deep in the dead doom style in that hallway. If they had, I don't know, two guys one other guy who could perform one like gray dude, worm yeah. yeah they wouldn't have needed barristan sure. like the other unsullied died so quickly <laughs> yeah i and gray worm took on like seven or eight of these guys i kind of feel like they did wharf the unsullied a little bit like they had an a overall bit, yeah. you could have sold that scene where they just get overwhelmed because you know mm-hmm. they're great fighters but they're just you know first of all their specialty is like phalanx style fighting. Yeah. And again, you know, like I said in the previous episode, this is what happens when you ask a military unit to basically police the streets. Um, they get ambushed and picked off. But 
you could have sold that as just an overwhelming force wearing them down, mm-hmm. um, which they kind of did with Grey Worm, but I feel like they diminished the reputation of the Unsullied a little bit the other yeah, way. Yeah, a slight bit. I don't know. But what does Danny do? Like, she had them out patrolling the streets just to maintain order, and now the Sons of Harpies are showing that they can match that force as well. And also, this dry-eyed whore, I'm over this dry-eyed whore. She <laughs> is a killer. She is. She needs to be got. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't like, know what, what you do the with hell. Danny. What the? I would love you to know her. You unleash Dario. You fucking unleash Dario go. is what you do. You get Dario and the second son. Fuck the Unsullied. They know nothing. To ninja up and go after these guys. Yes, you, you do. need an anti. You need a counter. You need a counter terrorist force. You do. You do, and that's Dario. Yep. Seems like it. It seems like it. Um, but yeah, I just I would love to know the story of this this dry eyed prostitute because. Mm-hmm. Why is she so angry with Danny? Do you think she's actually a no? Uh, like you're going to find out that she's some noble woman <laughs> who infiltrated got, the ranks, who got like kind of like a um, a a mirror of that uh, mad guy in the first season that was all pissed with Danny because I'm glad you got you saved me from being raped, but I was being raped by your dudes, yeah, and my whole town just got sacked. Maybe she's a noble woman that got roughed up in the so. mayhem and she's got a personal grudge because it seems like I don't understand why any of these former slaves would side with the masters. And yeah, I don't buy that these are all noblemen either um, do, doing all this killing. Hmm. Who who would they be if they weren't? I'm just saying like how... Former slave owners. Well, maybe... I, the only thing I can think of is like they're part of the pit fighters. Like they're... the you know they're out. They're essentially former, out of work pit fighters that are pissed that they're not able to start their fighting season, and that would explain their fighting skills. Okay, because I, I can damn. also imagine that they're former military for this city. Uh, I imagine they had to have some kind of military representation here. Right. When Danny rolls up, that is made mention of not at all. Right. It's it seems to be that the the show wants us to think there are former slave owners and former slaves, and that's it. Yeah. But how do you hold your city if that's the case? Yeah. That's and good. we know that they sent out their hero. Sure. I mean, maybe he was a pit fighter. Yeah. But it seems like that th- there could be militants, former militants, running around here. Yeah. But I I would love to know more about the mo- their their motivations because yeah, it is a little puzzling right now about why they're getting the assistance that they're that they're getting. Maybe they're getting paid. Maybe the oh. slave owners are paying the military, the former military guys. Because, you know, I mean, Hisdar is talking about, oh, or it wasn't Hisdar, it was the other guy who's talking about, you know, who are the people still living in the pyramids? Sure. Who are the people with all the money uh-huh. uh, getting buried in the temples? Yeah. Those are still the former slave owners. Right. And we know that there is tons of swords over in Essos. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've the Second Sons are one of them. Um, they, they've mm-hmm. made mention of others, but yeah. So okay. they're they're for hire for this very reason. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, and that's it for the episode. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I don't think so. I think we're ready for some uh, feedback. All right, let's do it. First one up, Ivan from Winnipeg. You've mentioned twice this season when talking about Barristan Selmy and his confrontation with the Kingsguard in season one and how he'd said he'd cut through them like so much butter. The actual line is, even now I could cut through the five of you like carving a cake. The only reason I mention is this, because you've said it twice now, and it's obvious you hold yourselves to a very high standard when it comes to accuracy of your podcasting. That's obvious? Uh, have we been setting people up for 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 I failure, so. disappointment, and contempt? Yeah, for seasons now. And because it's such a fucking badass line. I haven't read the books, though, so perhaps he likens the guards to butter rather than cake in the books. 
Well, Ivan, that's what I thought too. Uh, but then I went and reread the books, and I found that I had transmogrified the line in a way that only I can do. Uh, and I thought this would be a good time to drop a uh, line for our sponsor, Audible, uh, where you can get a free copy of uh, one of their Audible books on audiblepodcast.com slash G-O-T. And, uh, you know, as I did last week, I'm going to play a little clip from the book, this one, A Game of Thrones, uh, where we talk about the passage in question. So let's uh, go. Let's let's play the tape here, Jim, and see where I got it wrong. Finally, he drew his sword. Sansa heard someone gasp. Sir Boris and Sir Merrin moved forward to confront him, but Sir Barristan froze them in place with a look that dripped contempt. Have no fear, sirs. Your king is safe. No thanks to you. Even now, I could cut through the five of you as easy as a dagger cuts cheese. If you would serve under the kingslayer, not a one of you is fit to wear the white. He flung his sword at the foot of the Iron Throne. Here, boy, melt it down and add it to the others if you like. It will do you more good than the swords in the hands of these five. So it's actually a dagger through cheese. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I combined cake and cheese and got butter. Yeah. Maybe it's buttercream icing. On top of the cheesecake. <laughs> On top of the cheesecake. There you go. <laughs> this is why I love you, Jim. You're able to make sense of my madness. <laughs> uh, but Audible has over 180,000 spoken word titles, uh, and they're unabridged. In fact, the entire Game of Thrones series, as you know it as a show watcher or as book readers would insist, it's called A Song of Ice and Fire mm-hmm. by George Martin. They're all there in their entirety, all unabridged, all read by the very lovely Roy Dotris, Dotris. And uh, I can't recommend them uh, highly enough. And they got the whisper sync technology. The way I was able to find that so quickly is I searched for it in my copy of the Kindle book. Mm-hmm. I bookmarked it. I opened up the audiobook reader, selected the bookmark. Boom, it read it to me right away. It's really, really awesome if, mm-hmm. if you have both services. And by the way, you don't need a Kindle. If you got a modern smartphone, you have a Kindle device. Yeah. Because Windows... Phones, Android phones, iOS phones, they all have the application. Even computers. Even computers, especially yeah. computers, because it's all browser-based there. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually using a browser-based client to play that clip. If they would like to find out how to get a free trial and a free audiobook, how do they do that, Jim? You just go to audiblepodcast.com slash GOT. There you go. You can uh, sign up, get a free book, get a free trial, all that good stuff. Let's get back to the email, <laughs> to the feedback, rather. Uh, Inver M said in no spoiler section of the forum, someone brought up Ollie being around important meanings was not a good move from John's part, given Ollie's hatred for the wildlings, specifically the thins. I felt the same way about Danny pillow talking Dario in the premiere episode. I mean, Dario is a fucking sellsword. What's stopping him from switching allegiances if he could tap another hotter piece and sell her out now that he's confided or she's confided her weaknesses to him? I'm very wary of Dario. Also in A House of Black and White, something that went unnoticed was Dario's remark to that Lorax dude. Not sure if you touched on it, but when his Dario tells Danny she should have listened to him and executed the slave in in private or on the pyramid, to which Dario replies, that's what I keep telling her to do with you. What do you make of that? I mean, his Dario is a little too perfect and an obedient, but he hasn't given me a reason to be suspicious of him. And at this point, I'm more concerned about Dario. 
What do you think about the cell sword Dario, Jim? Can he be trusted? Is he true is blue he for leading, Danny? Is he leading the Sons of the Harpy? Is that what you're asking me? <laughs> That's mildly interesting. <laughs> and no, I wasn't. But now I am. Okay. Is right. he, in fact, the secret <laughs> commander? That explains why he knew exactly where in that wall to look. It does. It does. And, you know, you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet, right? You, you do. So, a few dragon eggs. Yeah, may, maybe Dario's leading it all. No, I um, I thought it was a that line was a one-off joke. Um, to to his dar just need because he's like a Han yeah. Solo smart ass. He's got to shine on his rivals. But I, I don't know. So he's professed his love for Danny and all that stuff. And I sure I I buy that. So I don't know if he would switch allegiances or what would cause that mm-hmm. or anything like that. But um, yeah, he is a sellsword. He is a sellsword. All right. Moving on to Seth L. What's the percentage chance that Sansa marries Ramsay and pulls a Gone Girl on him on our wedding night? How awesome would that be? Have you seen the movie no, Gone Girl? I, I don't get that reference. You certainly haven't read the books. Definitely not. Okay. Um, so Gone Girl is about a woman who sets out to just systematically destroy her husband and frame him for okay. murder. And she ends up murdering a lot of dudes in on the way. Spoiler is- alert. If you haven't seen this year-old movie by now and three-year-old book. So it's essentially, is Sansa going to you know throw her own red wedding? Kill Ramsay? Uh, at their own wedding. Uh, I don't know. It really depends on what happens with Stannis, right? She might not need to. Mm-hmm. If Stannis can't, quote-unquote, save her uh, from the Boltons, then, yeah, I could definitely see Sansa getting into uh, some something where, you feel that where Sansa, she takes matters into her own hands. Sansa's ready right now to do something like that, or do you think she I needs I think maybe a... she might think she is. Uh, like Because she's been hanging around Littlefinger so long, she's like, sure. yeah, I can scheme with the best of them. Yeah. She's had scheming training wheels this whole time in the form of Littlefinger. Yeah. I wonder if she she would be ready for something like that, or does she need some kind of intermediate step, and what might that step be? Hmm. I don't know what the step is, but I agree that she she does need something to bridge that gap. Yeah. To make her an actual threat. Hmm. All right. Moving on to Jared G. In the feedback for High Sparrow, a listener said that back in season two, Rinley did not know who Brienne was when she fought a fight with Loras. And that was the first time they had met. This would seem to contradict Brienne's story about the ball when Rinley was nice to her. This is not this, how the scene went down, however. Everyone else was surprised that she was a woman except for Rinley. When she takes off her helmet, revealing she's a woman, everyone gasps, but not Rinley. He knows exactly who it is, and he says, You are all your father promised, on and more, my lady. And knows her name without asking her. Just wanted to say so that no one was misinformed and think that the whole story of the ball was a giant continuity continuity error. Okay. Yeah. I, like I said, my memory of the season two thing was kind of weak on the spur of the moment, so thanks for setting it straight there, Jared. Yeah. I think it worked cool. either way. It worked uh-huh. as him not paying her as much attention as a life-altering event was for her, but yeah, I also yeah. like the fact that, yeah, he... Because you're right. Brienne is kind of unforgettable. I, it seems like it. She's yeah. not your average, just mousy, <laughs> waif, wallflower at a dance, you know? Mm-hmm. Great lumbering beast and all. Rob writes us, wants us to discuss Littlefinger saying how rare it is that he doesn't know much about a lord referring to Ramsay Bolton. Mm-hmm. He begins, first off, is he lying? And if so, is he intentionally putting Sansa in peril? If not, wouldn't he have done more homework? I mean, maybe everyone doesn't know about Reek, but come on. He flays someone every third episode. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, good question. I don't think he'd lie to Sansa. Not about that, anyway. Yeah. I think maybe he would for the, the greater good, but I don't 
I don't see that as being, you know, the greater good as far as Littlefinger is concerned. Why he wouldn't have information about Ramsay is questionable. I mean, he's been around for a long time. Certainly people know that this is yeah. that this is Bruce's bastard, right? I was thinking about that. Like the Starks are like the Lord Paramounts in the North. They're like the 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 wardens. They're the masters. But then the Boltons are the tier right below them. Mm-hmm. So is it reasonable to assume that Littlefinger would not know about the only son, albeit a bastard, of the Boltons in the North? That doesn't seem like it would be something that would escape his notice. I think you're right. Now, you have to question how well uh, Roos was able to suppress knowledge of his sons, because it's clearly is not something he's proud of. Yeah. Um, Or maybe, you know, it is certainly carrying on the Bolton tradition, but he doesn't see it as real politic. He doesn't see it as very strategically sound. So you have to question... Could Roos suppress that information? Is Roos's ability to to keep stuff covered up equal to Littlefinger's ability to find stuff out? And after the last few episodes, I kind of think, yeah, I could buy that. Possibly. Um, I don't know. Everybody seems to know about Jon Snow, but Jon Snow was just totally out in the open, right? Sure. Like, I mean, he's walking around. He lived Winterfell, in Winterfell, just hanging out. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So I, I feel like it just doesn't jive. It doesn't fit with the idea that Littlefinger is kind of all-knowing in this world. So assuming, let's play the other side. Let's go internet advocate here. Uh, if he does know about Ramsey and is just playing possum, to what end? Is he deliberately putting Sansa at risk? Does that jive Oof. with how much it seems like he cares about? It doesn't. If not Sansa no. as a person, Sansa as an object to be possessed as a consolation prize for not getting cat all those years ago. That or possibly a pawn on his board. I I mean, I, I think he's grooming Sansa for something. Sure. Beyond just, you know, I want a Catlin replacement. <laughs> grooming. That's an interesting choice in this, this case. Um, on the same subject, Rob continues, you mentioned if someone, if anyone knows about Stannis's whereabouts, it'd be Littlefinger. So is it possible he knew to drop Sansa at the last second and get away if Stan- Stannis will truly be there in a fortnight? Wouldn't Sansa be scared or mad that Uncle Baelish won't stay through the wedding? He may have had to leave in a hurry anyway if immediately means Cersei needs him now at King's Landing. Otherwise, we should expect a turbo wedding at Winterfell? In any case, my unsullied opinion is this comment about the last time the Winterfell and Vale paired up they toppled a dynasty to mean that he, as the Vale and Starks, possibly Sansa, not Bolton, led overthrow okay i might not have read all that correctly but i think he's saying that he's saying that to roost but he's implying that him and and sansa stark is yeah. the real alliance he's talking about mm-hmm. i buy that sure yeah if he's setting up her up as the warden of the north or the right. winterfell captain Wardness. or the fucking i don't know what the title would be but yeah mm-hmm. uh they could definitely join forces later on later on i mean she doesn't have any power right now but sure she will and obviously his turbo wedding at Winterfell came before he saw this episode, so mm-hmm. um, interesting stuff to think about. Rachel L. said, I'm assuming the people have already pointed this out, but just in case there are all those people out there who like the idea of Brienne and Pod hooking up, I thought I'd better point out a major reason why Brienne and Pod developing a sexual relationship would be a terrible idea. Okay. Pregnancy. Westeros is a world where the pill, the pill IUDs, and other convenient prophylactic measures like moon tea... Uh, aren't available. That's actually a real thing Moon in the books. Tea. Yeah, yeah. 
What the fuck is that? Birth control? It's a tea that's like an abortificant. It's essentially it just, like Plan B of Westeros. Is this invented by Melisandre? No, there. I I do believe dragon magic stuff. I think it's a there is there's several herbal remedies throughout the ages that have been okay. advertised to do that thing. Yeah. So, um, abortion is not something invented in the 20th century. If people were <laughs> sure. were thinking, uh, it's been improved in the 20th century. Sure, sure, uh, much safer. Uh, Anyway, these aren't available from a neighborhood pharmacist. From Brienne's stance, a pregnancy would be a complete disaster. Her gift is her ability as a warrior. Given the high risk of pre-20th century childbirth, there's a high risk she could die from complications. Best case scenario for what? She has a healthy child and now has some place... Wait, she has a healthy child and has to now somehow pr- provide for another person? It would mean the end of her career as a warrior. All true. Yeah, uh, I think so. Also, the power dynamic of the relationship as knight and squire would be irre- irrevocably altered and would dump things back into a more standard male-female Westerosi trope, which would kind of suck. I like that these two are friends and are developing a great friendship that goes against every norm of social convention, but as friends, they have a lot to offer each other. Podrick is more observant and socially able than he often seems, and his King Landing's knowledge could help Brienne navigate or at least dodge politics a bit better. I'm hoping for them to become BFFs and a really solid team. Yeah, I'm with you. I I don't I, need a romantic relationship. Yeah, I am definitely not shipping Pod and Brienne, but that's an excellent <laughs> reason for them not to uh, not for for Pod not to develop or demonstrate his skills in that area. Yeah. Uh, Michael K said on rewatching, I think Littlefinger identifies that he knows that Arya is still alive. He says a stanza or <laughs> Jesus. He says that Sansa at Moat Kaelin, you're Sansa Stark, eldest surviving child of Ned and Catelyn Stark. If he thought that everyone else was dead, he surely would have only said, or surely would have said only and not eldest. Doubtful that he has info on Bran or Rickon, as that was barely known, and he may have seen Arya Harrenhal. Either writing here was poor or intentional. Which do you think? I don't know, man. I don't know. That, like, you can get caught up in semantics right. uh, a little bit and too much. And the argument is, and... like, if this was real life, you couldn't make this argument. But since this is scripted drama, it is a little bit stronger to sure. say. Yes. You, I think it's fair to say that you can infer things. Now, you might not always be right in your inference because sometimes, honestly, the viewers are more clever than the show writers because we outnumber them like a million to one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... I don't know. Uh, what would be the implications of him knowing about Arya still being alive? I honestly don't know. Um, because she is younger than Sansa, so there is no hereditary heirs no. stuff going on here. No, but I mean, I, I guess he doesn't know about Bran, right? I, it's up in the air whether he does or not. And again, she would still be really... the youngest, uh, or he would. He, Sansa would still be older, so. But doesn't like doesn't all of the the power and the inheritance and stuff usually fall to the male child, like the eldest male child? Oh, that's a good point. If there's any male heirs, it probably. I mean, again, medieval lineage is kind of hard to understand, and it was different from country to country. Okay, but I do believe that's how it worked. Yeah, and in, in fact, it might even work through like your brother's sons. Like so, so your cousin, you know, if you're a daughter, a cousin might jump in, in front of you. I mean, obviously, Jon Snow's not in that running because he's a bastard, and really, Rob's the only one older, so we know Rob's dead. That's a true statement. Um, I don't know how inheritance works, but... Well. Yeah, I it, I know someone set me straight like two seasons ago in a feedback, and it was a really well-researched um, 
missive, but I just for life of me, it, I can't remember. It just sure. doesn't come up that often, you know? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Grant Y says, I don't think that Jon Snow is Ned Stark's bastard child. I think that he is the love child of Rhaegar Targaryen and Lyanna Stark, and from the latest episode, has given me enough fuel to put my theory out there. From the first season, there seems to be something more to the story of Ned Stark's ch- bastard child. Ned seems way too honorable and loyal to Catelyn to have taken on a mistress. He doesn't have any of the exuberance that Robert had when talking about his romps in the sack, perhaps because that didn't happen. Before Ned leaves for King's Landing and Jon Snow heads for the wall, Jon asks about his mother. Ned tells Jon that he will tell him all about his mother when he returns from King's Landing. Based on the events of this past episode, I believe that Lyanna is Jon's mother. First of all, Sir Barristan tells stories of Rhaegar giving away money to the poor, which isn't really a calling card for a rapist. I think I tend to think that the show is softening the perception of Rhaegar now, so that he is a more likable character when this truth is revealed. Furthermore, Sansa has a conversation with Littlefinger about her aunt, and the facial expression that Littlefinger gives when Sansa says her aunt was raped would suggest otherwise. It would make hmm. perfect sense to me why Ned would come back from war and call John his bastard son. Robert is now king and would be devastated to find out that his uh, beloved Lyanna loved another, especially a Targaryen, and Robert finding out might even have put the child at risk of death. Ned protected the child by claiming it was his bastard and barring the shame that came with it, or bearing the shame that came with it in regards to his wife. This revelation was also explained why Melisandre is so interested in Jon, a man with both Targaryen and Stark blood. How could she resist? It's interesting because Alan Sepinwall thought that the whole story of uh, Rhaegar and Lyanna was a parable of, you know, yet again, one person's monster is another person's saint. Okay. And we see that time and time again, how people view, how differently people are viewed um, depending on the lens. And you see, you know, Danny's getting this one image of Rhaegar. Sansa has this other image of Rhaegar. Mm -hmm. You know, Littlefinger has an enigmatic look. It could be just another statement of how gray this world is it could be yeah let's move on to heath l i was just listening to your official full cast on game of thrones 503 high sparrow and was at the point where you were talking about how you guys recognize the high sparrow himself actor jonathan price from other works but you were having problems placing him from where let me take the time to introduce you to the game of thrones james bond 007 villain crossover game it's very simple <laughs> try to find as many x bond villains as you can in game of thrones Jonathan Price played Elliot Carver in the second Pierce Bronson 007 movie from 1997, Tomorrow Never Dies. God damn, I feel old. He was the lead villain, a media mogul. That's almost 20 years ago, You're right. man. You're right, absolutely he was, yeah. Yeah, he was the lead villain, a media mogul. who tra- He was essentially evil Ted Turner, yeah. who tried to start World War III war. Uh-huh. between Britain and China, sell newspapers, gain broadcasting rights in China, and make money. Yep. Easiest one to spot, of course, is Ned Stark slash Sean Bean himself, who played Agent 006 Alec Trevelyan yep. in Bos- Bronson's in favorite Indeed. James Bond movie. And this was exactly 20 years ago. Yeah. In Bronson's first movie, the 1995 GoldenEye, he was the lead villain who's actually a former agent just like Bond, but turned against Britain because he was actually an orphan of Russian descent, and he tried to rob the British banks while destroying all their technology with a wide-scale EMP blast over London. Another is Grand Maester Pycelle, actor Julian Glover, who was also the lead villain in For Your Eyes Only, one of Roger Moore's later efforts from 007 from 1981. He pretended to be an ally of the British while he was really smuggling goods throughout the Mediterranean and selling British government secrets and technologies to the Russians. He also did some work for the Nazis back in uh, Indiana (laughs) Jones days. 
Oh, okay. Uh, these are just the ones I've found so far, but I have to think this is an ongoing joke at this point between the double Ds behind the scenes. How many Bond villains can we stuff in there without anyone noticing? I just assume at this point the double Ds are just massive closet Bond fans and that when the mountain truly gets resurrected, he will return as a resurrected Gert Frobe. And he will have Goldfinger himself back on screen telling people how much he expects them not to talk, but simply to die. Here, here's what I think it is. Yeah. The Venn diagram, the overlapping section of the Venn diagram of <laughs> sure. people in James Bond movies yeah. and people in Game of Thrones is so huge that you're bound to get a whole bunch of those actors. Right, right. So it's also kind of ironic because Charles Dance plays a parody of a James Bond villain in the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Uh, Last Action Hero. Okay, so I haven't seen that one. I mean, yeah, one it, few. The, the the Venn diagram of British dudes who've played <laughs> evil characters. Because let's face it, in the last thirty years, ninety percent of all villains have been evil British dudes, mm-hmm. evil German dudes, or evil Middle Eastern dudes. Okay, yeah. that is ninety five percent of all villains from American cinema in the last thirty years. So mm-hmm. you're right. That's a pretty wide net to be cast in when you're trying to find British dudes for Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buddy C, I was wondering, if Ramsey is only legitimized because of a king's edict, shouldn't it stand a reason that his legitimacy could be taken away just as simply? Once Cersei learns of Ramsey's wedding to Sansa, I don't imagine Ramsey remaining a Bolton for long, at least not in the eyes of the crown. Is this something unforeseen by Roose and Littlefinger, or am I missing something? This seems like a serious consistency problem with the Double Ds creating the storyline out of whole cloth. So I did some research, and I guess the whole legitimizing bastards thing is extremely rare in Westeros. In fact, Martin has written about it and say it's so rare that there is matters of disagreement about, like, if you have an older son, it's a bastard, and then a trueborn son uh, that's, like, second in line... And then you legitimize the older bastard. Mm-hmm. Should he get everything or should the trueborn son get everything? Like sure. people people disagree about that and wars have been fought. Now, it seems like if a royal decree can legitimize a bastard, then a royal decree could illegitimize a bastard. Yeah. Um, but I think what would more likely happen is that I believe a king can also strip by royal decree a man of lands and titles. Okay. So instead of actually saying you're no longer that guy's son, which is kind of ridiculous, he would just strip him of his heraldry and his family name, or not his family name, but of his uh, titles and honors and yeah. lands. Which that makes is sense. that's all the good stuff about being sure. Yeah. What what good is a name without any of the <laughs> exactly. benefits that go along with it? Exactly. But if anyone knows any, like I said, I spent about thirty minutes researching this, and I couldn't come up with anything conclusive. Could not find a single instance of a royal decree dissolving someone's legitimacy so if you guys know otherwise send it in to game of thrones at baldmove.com barrett r what kind of reviews does Littlefinger's brothel have on yelp i feel like nine out of ten times we go there something horrible is happening which is bad enough making the setting for all things murder where there are endless possibilities but at this point what reasonable person would patron Littlefinger's? If it's not baby murder, it's Lannisters being maimed by Dornishmen. In the space of back-to-back episodes, we have the High Septon getting his junk whipped, followed by another Sparrow-led attack on who knows who. I'm mm-hmm. sure I'm forgetting some other ones, but Jesus, I think the Double Ds are unwittingly pressing their luck here. Surely word has gotten out that this brothel may not be the best place for those seeking discretion. Just seems lazy to me to keep us going back there where it serves little purpose for the plot. Hmm. Well, I... 
Yeah, it doesn't serve much purpose for yeah. Littlefinger's plot. But One, zero I mean, stars got junk whipped with not patron eyes again. Yeah, paraded <laughs> through the streets nude. Ended uh, up in the black cells. <laughs> would not recommend. Yeah, uh, ha- had to have my hand amputated. Uh, Girls, do, do not repeat. Girl's face entirely covered by hair. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm wondering if that's going to be any kind of focus in the plot coming up when Littlefinger comes back is he going to try and set his business straight because it's obviously been damaged I, I think yeah and that I think that's kind of a, a plot point that Littlefinger's been gone now what two seasons yeah so his power is really waning in King's Landing he's not on a small council anymore he's not personally there to supervise and to keep everything mm-hmm. in line it's just Oliver trying to hold it together Oliver is not a Littlefinger no and so uh, when Littlefinger gets back, I wonder if he'll be displeased with how it's been run. Yeah, I, I, I am very curious to see what kind of confrontation happens between him and Cersei, what his business with Cersei is, or actually what her business with him is. Uh-huh. A lot of, lot, lot of interesting angles there, mildly interesting angles. <laughs> uh, Christina T. has a micro theory. I have a quick thought about Marin Trant and the Tyrell storyline. What if all of this is working to move Arya's plot along? I think I remember her repeating Trant's name on her list in her prayer, and since she's headed, he's headed to Bravos. There's a possibility that she could see him and run into him. If that were to happen, she would have to decide pretty quick if she's going to become a faceless man or cling to Arya Stark. She's already on the fence about truly committing to the gig based on her saving Needle, and this might push her to decide. What do you think? She's walking down the alley. She yeah. sees the man that killed her mentor. Is that a mildly interesting plot point for you, Jim? I think so. Yeah, yeah. She would have to at least make a decision there, you know. Why would the faceless man care? I don't know. I like if the Karate Kid were to go off and sign himself up for another tournament while uh-huh. Mr. Miyagi's training him. Yeah, I don't think Mr. Miyagi would like that. I think you know they they want a certain level of focus. Those, uh, those wise old masters. Sure. So. Can't I, I can't follow. imagine that you can just stop your training in the middle to go kill a bunch of people and not have that be a setback in your training. <laughs> All right. Interesting. Mildly interesting. Let's move on to Jasmine G. I really enjoyed the last scene of the episode. If Grey Worm and Barristan are indeed dead, it was an epic send-off for them both. It opens the way for Tyrion and Jorah and underlies the fact that Danny doesn't really have a hold on her city. There's just one thing that keeps me from loving it. Why are the Unsullied so easy to defeat? <laughs> when the Unsullied were introduced to us, they were the ultimate of badasses. Because they have like four pounds of muscle total on their bodies. <laughs> That's why. Danny was promised that an army of 8,000 Unsullied could take an army many times its size. These are men raised from childhood to be weapons of war. I can barely buy that the Unsullied would waltz straight into an obvious ambush on account of the whole no-fear issue that pointed out to us a, a couple episodes ago. What I don't buy is that the Sons of Anarchy take them and sell me down. I'd have to rewatch the scene, but it looked like they were only outnumbered, perhaps three to one, in which case I expect the Unsullied to win. <laughs> Plus, if I'm not mistaken, the Sons of Harpy aren't even necessarily trained fighters. Mm-hmm. Could have sworn I saw a couple of chubby dudes there in those masks. I just can't co-sign on the way the battle turned out. Yeah, you know, I've always had a problem with how the Unsullied look. They don't look like warriors. They mm-hmm. look like dudes who've been dressed up in armor mm-hmm. um and the reputation has all come from like the threat of of them like right. the, the implied uh skills and we see like their skills are good i mean they they take out you know at least two to one there mm-hmm. and especially gray worm gray right. worm is killing like 
10 dudes at least. So, I mean, we, I know that they have skills. The sons of the harpy, I'm still sticking with the idea that maybe they are cell swords of some kind. Yeah. Because you're right, the masters would not have any training whatsoever. Sure. They're uh, just rich, soft, fat dudes. Yeah. Yeah. So I I can I can definitely see why you would be a little upset about yeah. the the unsullied not being great warriors. Yeah. But I I don't know, they I thought they mostly held their own. They got fucking overwhelmed, man. A three to one advantage is no joke. Yeah. You get surrounded by dudes, even a three dudes. I mean, that's why, look at Brienne, the time that she had to fight three guys, that was a fucking struggle, and she was way bigger than them. And certainly better skilled. So, I also think it's a point, you know, I've made the point that you don't use a peacekeep, you don't use soldiers as a peacekeeping troop. Um, also, soldiers that are trained in using ridiculously long spears fighting <laughs> in narrow corridors, yeah. it's like, I think you kind of give credit for the Sons of Harpy to pick the train. Like, on an open field, these guys interlocking shields, those long swords, it's a bloodbath. That's oh, yeah. a shit show. Like, in the plains of Westeros, these guys could potentially dominate. Also, that was supposed to be the key to the Unsullied. It's their it's their superior training on the battlefield that helps them overcome the massive disadvantage from having your balls cut off mm-hmm. when you're, like, five years old. You don't grow lean muscle mass without testosterone. It doesn't happen. Sure. Yeah. So I like that it's realistic that these guys are kind of slender yet mm-hmm. well-trained. So I, I I think, again... That's a good point. You get them out of their element. Yeah. And, and they're not equipped to to compete with guys who are actually trained fighters right. and, and have, you know, muscle mass. Right, right. Armies learn this lesson over and over again. You design a tank to fight on the plains of Europe, and then you, you send it into the desert into desert towns and suddenly uh-huh. it's not doing so well it's not invincible i think that's the unsullied they are not designed to be a police force in a town with small twisty corridors and dane's gonna have to figure out something really quick to counteract this threat because the sons of harpies seem very smart very very with a gift for tactics dario will step in <laughs> unless he's unless he's the rat like we just discussed <laughs> nah i can't imagine uh, Buddy C says, Barristan the Bold, as the books tell it, is one of the greatest fighters left alive in the world. Eddard and Jamie have both said that he is the one they would never fight. So rather than showcase this, as the books do on numerous occasions, we get one fight against some faceless jerks. And for what? To save Grey Worm, the most boring and useless character put on screen since Walter <laughs> from Lost? This is a shame and a travesty. Barristan deserved better. We deserve better. better. Hmm. I... If, in fact, Barristan the Bold is dead, I go back and forth about whether this is an appropriate occasion for him to go out. Because I feel like they could have milked a lot more badass out of him. Yeah, I agree. We only got to see that one fight. But having said that, again, him unsheathing the sword and running towards what everything else, everyone else is running away and wrecking house. Mm -hmm. Pretty badass. Yeah, it's It's very well done. It's going to feel a little futile if both of them are dead. I mean, yeah, it's a cool moment, but what does it actually do yeah, other if than he make Danny like, mad? You compare that to, like, the the hound saving Sansa. Mm, like, he yeah, got in there and, like, epic. hacked those dudes apart, and then he or Sansa died at the end. Well, I guess Sansa dying would have made it irrelevant, <laughs> right? Sure, yeah, I mean, it, sure. So, I yeah, I mean, it would have been a, a lot more awesome if he did that defending Danny. And died at her yeah. feet with everyone else dead, or mm-hmm. 
he did it to defend Grey Worm and Grey Worm. Although, again, I'm kind of with this guy. Fuck Grey Worm. He's a Grey Worm. Yeah, I'm not that invested in Grey Worm. He's like he's. It, it's amazing that he's actually more interesting than he is in the books. But uh, he's. I would much rather keep Barristan around. Hmm. He's a cooler character. And he's got better advice for her. I certainly. Think. You know, he's 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 kind of a leader that she needs at this point. Yeah. Now that he's if he if in fact he's gone, I'm not certain of that, but. If he's dead, that's going to be a huge problem for her. So, I mean, that may be the sense in which it pays off, you know? Do you, if, if Grey Worm's dead, do you th- at what point do you think Danny can start having problems with her Unsullied? Because we already see that they are starting mm. to have independent thoughts. She's encouraged that. You know, we are st- stuck here in this town defending people that are not our own and getting killed. And now our leader's gotten killed. What the hell are we doing here? They're going to have I mean, their Vietnam el- moment. What What else do they want to do? Like, do they want to go kill people in other places? Do they want to not be warriors? It seems like... I don't know. You know, their whole lives they've been warriors. That's kind of what they know. Right. I would expect them to want to continue to be warriors, but maybe just to have a different target. I don't know. Maybe one of them wants to get into pottery. Maybe one of them wants to sail a ship. Like, <laughs> they haven't... Ha- it's not like they went to career counseling and like, oh, yeah, warrior, <laughs> cut my balls off. You know, sure. it's... No, that... <laughs> But you tend to stick with what you know, for the most part. <laughs> they know war. Well, they have a midlife crisis. There you go. They all and... buy Corvettes and <laughs> drive off into the desert. Uh, Corvette <laughs> is a breed of horse in Westeros, just so you know. Uh-huh. Uh, Devin H. First off, in Instant Take, you're saying that when Jamie said he wanted to die in the arms of a woman that he loves, he was referring to Cersei. I think there's a bit more to it than that. I think to Jamie, it's more of a general statement that he wants a woman to love and one that will let him love her. I think Jamie's undergoing some changing internal character and trying to figure out what he wants. Part of him still wants Cersei. I know what part. But part of him is realizing how ludicrous and manipulative their relationship is, and he's growing tired of it. He needs a more stable, mutually honest, mutually respectful, mutually affectionate relationship. I think this tumultuous and relational introspection and undergoing character change is hinted at by the merchant ship passing by Tarth on the way to Dorne. This is a shot that is completely out of place in the episode, if not to remind us of Jamie and Brienne's connection. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Tarth is shown shortly before Jamie says he wants to die in the arms of a woman that he loves. Also, mm-hmm. I hate to say this because I've grown like Jamie, but that sounds like potential foreshadowing. So my question would be, why is he on this mission then? Is it because he wants to actually just save Marcella? It is his daughter, and this is also kind yeah. of jive with his awakening, spiritual awakening or whatever, his his continuing uh, face turn. So the theory here would be that he's not doing this for Cersei. He's, in fact, just doing it for himself and for Marcella, and that he actually loves Brienne, which I'm cool with. Yeah, no, um, I'm a big Jamie and Brienne fan. I've always kind of been hoping that they would, right? I don't know, end up together, whatever that means in this sure. universe. Sure, Uh But... That really changes the perspective on it. Yeah, I mean, my take is I think he is confused. You know, Definitely. he you, you look at their arc last season, and it was two people that are aware that their status and their situation has changed, but they still want to try to recreate these patterns and others resisting or not resisting or whatever. Um, so yeah, but I I never thought about the whole seeing Tarth and then saying, I want to die in the arms of a woman I love, that is very connected cinematically. Yeah. So it's gotta be significant. Yeah. 
I'm I'm totally on the Jamie brand ship. Denise T. It was painful watching Tommen get emasculated by the sparrows. The only time I ever have wistfully wished Joffrey was still the king. Because you know old Joff would have taken that, oh, the sparrow's too busy for you bullshit for one second. Uh, Joff he'd would get have, out his crossbow. Joff would have offered up a big helping of some sparrow pie. Rest in peace. Yeah. Honestly, Tommen should have just cleaned house. Yes, it would have shed blood in the Great Sept of Baylor. <laughs> yes, it would have. I was hoping he would. It, it it would have increased his cries of bastard and abomination amongst the little folk. But this sparrow thing is not going to be an easy to control situation. And no, I think he could have done it this episode in two weeks time. Mm. You know, they're going to keep carving heads. They're going to keep putting on black robes and tying chains around their chest, bandolier style. And it's going to be something that the gold cloaks can't handle. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if this like is a geometric growth situation, but there's certainly, if all you need to be a, a, a faith militant is a black robe, a hammer and a scar on your forehead. That's not a high requirement. No, you're right. You can uh, mint those things out. You can punch them out like movie tickets. Sure. It might spread through King's Landing like a virus. Mm. A religious virus. Joel H., the Sand Snakes, for some reason, that entire scene rubbed me the wrong way. I kept getting a sucker punch vibe from them. The film. <laughs> oh, God, that's a terrible movie. <laughs> I, it is. One of the worst I've ever seen. It is, but you know what? After he said it, I'm like, oh, man, it is kind of <laughs> sucker punchy. I like cheese in my nachos, but not in my Game of Thrones. I don't know if it's the actress's performances, the direction, the writing, or a combination thereof, but it's not working. I Okay. You know, the Sand Snakes are kind of cheesy in the in the books in mm-hmm. the same way that, like, Renly's Rainbow Guard, Kingsguard, was cheesy. Uh-huh. But I never noticed, and now that they're on screen, it didn't bother me the first time, but it it could get a little, too, a little Fox Force 5. Yeah, I or mean, the deadly I'll, viper assassin squad, you know, I'll, I'll say I noticed it and it it felt slightly weird, but I, I'm OK with it. It's weird because like Oberon was, you know, with his with his, you know, flowing blouses and his flowery talk and his bisexual gangbangs. It was kind of ludicrous in King's Landing. But mm-hmm. for some reason, him being the only one that was that over the top grounded it in a way that like, OK, sure. You, you see, like they're purporting the whole country is populated by Oberons. Yeah. It seems a little much. Yeah. I, it, it makes me wonder because his brother is very different, right? Yeah. Um, so it makes me wonder if in fact the whole country is Oberons or if it's, but you see what I'm saying much like, more split all that concentrated Oberon without seeing yeah. a lot of other people. Like we only have his, her, you know, Oberon's brother to counteract that. It is a little bit, you know, too much sugar in your sweet tea kind of situation. Yeah, making my teeth hurt. And, and we become, you know, kind of like the audience in King's Landing, where we're looking at Oberyn going, oh, this is a little ridiculous here, but whatever. Uh, whereas you go to Dorne and you're like, you're the outsider, you know? Mm. It, it puts you as an audience member on the other side of it going, guys, you're all ridiculous. Yeah. And, and everyone going, no, you are. Yeah, right. So it's a little fish out of water sort of thing, right? Sure. All right. It's like going to Fremont in Seattle, and it's like suddenly you're the only non-hipster. <laughs> you're the you're only You're the guy. weirdo. <laughs> exactly. You're the fucking weirdo. Uh, Allison D. said, hey, guys, I noticed an instant take. You were talking about three Sand Snake girls and who their mothers were. 
I don't know if you watch all the behind-the-scenes things on HBO after the episode, but this week is and was about the Sand Snakes hmm. scenes, and they talk about how all three girls have different mothers and distinct personalities. It's very interesting, and I'd encourage you to watch it if you haven't. That's actually super good advice. I didn't get to do it this week because of either. our schedule, but if you have HBO Go... Uh, in the related episode materials, they always have an inside, and it's always something really interesting about the architecture or a particular scene. And it, I mean, I guess if you're an extreme spoiler phobe, there might be something in there because the characters to kind of talk about their their backgrounds and their motivations and some things that might not be further developed until an episode or two. But you know, how, how long until HBO merges HBO Go and HBO Now? Like, I think it was silly of them to make those two distinct services just give people access to hbo go for a certain fee per yeah month. especially since, branding wise that's silly especially since i feel like they just you know took the source code for hbo go control c <laughs> yeah, control v pretty much compile boom there you go i yeah. i don't know i that is because now on my apple tv i now have an hbo go app and an hbo now app sure and it, it's just really weird you know i think it's all about you know it then Taking this long to get HBO now, when obviously it's a fantastic economic idea, is all about yes. them at, at the HBO headquarters with the beans on the, yeah. the triple beam scale, measuring it out and like, okay. Pleasing the masters. When when the Comcast and Time Warner revenue drops off enough that we can justify the increased revenue from that, and, and or when it's, our contracts are up and we, we can renegotiate, I think that's the whole the reason it's different. Is because it's a marketing thing. It's it is. It's not the same thing that a cable subscriber is getting. Look, it's called now, not go. Wouldn't you rather go than the now? <laughs> now oh. rhymes with cow. Do you want to be a cow? I mean, in ten years, I <laughs> I suspect it'll just be HBO.com. Yeah. yeah, and that also is featured on Time Warner and Comcast. Probably Gerard M. Uh, one thing that kind of bugs me with all these brothel raids, where the f- when the fuck are they finally going to arrest Oliver on a seventh raid, the tenth, nine hundred ninety eighth? Are the faith militants only after prominent people who purport to be in line with the seven, and perhaps Oliver has made no claims as such? Or should I possibly read something into his not being arrested? Maybe mm. my early theory as to him being the key to getting to turn Marjorie is still in play. Hard to think she'd be seduced while she's still steaming about Loris at this point, though. I think his larger point of is Oliver dodging all this attention like the worst he's gotten is a fat lip in all these raids, even though yeah. he is the male whore meister. Mm-hmm. Is it, should we read something into that, Jim? I think you probably should in Game of Thrones. Uh, that's always a smart move. Why not? It's fun. Yeah, I got a tinfoil hat on. Uh, it could be as simple as. The story calls for someone to fill in Littlefinger on what's mm. been going on, and that's kind of been, you know, his guy left in charge, the sidekick, the whatever, for Littlefinger. But I doubt it. Mm. There's got to be something more there. I'm just not sure what it is yet. All right. Danny H. says, after watching Thrones for five seasons, I need to ask an important question. Has anyone else noticed that Aiden Jillian, a.k.a. Littlefinger, is a terrible actor? I have no idea what accent he's attempting, and his performance <laughs> is hammy as hell. He's terrible in the two minutes of The Dark Knight Rises he's in, as well as other movies. I'll admit he's average in The Wire, but nothing compared to the other acting talent on the show. Is it just me who sees this? Clearly HBO doesn't. I don't know. I like the change from... Yeah. I, I saw him in The Wire, then I saw him in this, and I was like, wow, those are vastly different characters, right? Yeah. Uh, so 
I thought he was actually pretty good. The accent, yeah, it's ridiculous. No one has that accent in this world except for him. Well, he's Irish. Is that his natural <laughs> accent? Ooh, I, I, doubt, I doubt it. Because it's a I, weird accent, man. I know that they try to kind of keep like the guys in the north having like a, a, a northern type British accent and uh, people in the south having a more like King's Landings is more of a London, you know, accent. So I don't know if that means like the veil is kind of Irish. Uh, I, you know, again, I don't, I don't know, but it is, it is an odd one, but I, mm. I, I guess, I mean, why would he have a terrible Irish accent? He's an Irishman. Yeah, you. I, maybe he's been in Hollywood too long. Is it just the inflection he puts on the lines that makes it seem odd to us? Or no, I, I, think I don't he's think doing he's... another accent. I don't think that's his real okay. accent, but I'm not sure of it. Yeah, I've never heard an interview. Uh, maybe I need to yeah. look up an interview of just him talking talking to King's English. But uh, mm-hmm. I don't think he's terrible, though. Nope. I never thought he's terrible. I, no, I like him. All right. His other point: my bald and chain fun is now over. Tyrion has been kidnapped by Mormons, and we've entered the t- second terrible season where the network has demanded Tyrion be married to a handsomer, more surly man with a full head of hair. God damn the networks. That's his... You know, what? The, the, the Tyrion Varys, bald and chain, two gay lovers living and having adventures? No? Yeah, he talked about this. It's, 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 a, it's a TV show he came up with. You... Oh, yeah. oh my God! Okay, yeah, yeah. 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 So they, 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 they the, the second season. <laughs> what does they, he call this? They one? wrote out very. I don't know. I'd say, uh, uh, Bear and Jane. <laughs> oh no, that's a good one. Bear love good one for Jorah. Yeah, Bear the little bear. I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not good with the, the not offensive. I'm gay sure he'll come up with something. Nicknames, honestly, he'll come up with something and send it to us next week. I'm sure. All right, there you go, Danny. It's all on you. Mark from Omaha said, I haven't thought of Varys being allied with Jorah and the kidnapping of Tyrion until I until it was brought up an instant ca- cast. It makes a lot of sense in retrospect, though. Varys is not getting anywhere near Tyrion, or is not getting anywhere with getting Tyrion to sober up. By having Jorah kidnapping, Varys was getting him off the bottle cold turkey. He's also getting Tyrion to do what he does best, think. He was able to deduce Jorah's identity from the clues before him. He should be in fine form by the time he lands in Marine. That's a fair point. This... Like I said, it may be a very curvy road to Marine. I kind of threw that out there as a joke. Like, maybe this is part of his plan, but maybe. I mean, Varys is a master manipulator. This is all mildly interesting. And the ball and chain, he just wasn't being taken serious. Uh, he, is, he puts up such a fight, though, when Tyrion wants to get out. I don't know, man. I mean, does he just suspect that when they get to Volantis, Tyrion will have had enough? and demand to get out and like he'll want to go to the brothels that he can assume mm-hmm. fairly uh but like you'd have to assume i mean there's so many things that have to fall the bear still knows where jorah is after yeah. he turned traitor against the uh, against the legitimate king and, and started supporting daenerys you'd have to see jorah in a, on it he could get a raven off to jorah even mm-hmm. though he's not at a castle or, you know, it's like, I don't think you can just send a raven to some dude in Volantis and the raven's going to be like, ha, ha, there he is. <laughs> I mean, it's got, you can send a raven to a tower uh-huh. in some keep, uh, like one of the 20, 30 places in the Westeros that people give a shit about, but just sending them anywhere is, is I don't know. seems like there's a lot that has to just go perfectly yeah. for that plan to work. Yeah. I don't know. 
All right, just got, I think, two or three emails left. Gary L. says, Game of Thrones has had some pretty great char- pairings of characters. Arya and the Hound, Bran the Pod, the name just a few. And this season we've had Jamie and Bronn and Tyrion with Varys. I want to know what you guys think of the recent pairing of Tyrion and Jorah. It seems like the writers could really mine a lot of material from this pairing. Both men are sons of a deceased famous father and members of a well-known house who were both exiled from their homes for doing... Uh, for the, for their own doing and are in love with two women who hate and despise them. Granted, one's a prostitute and the other's a queen, but this makes a scene, the scene in the brothel last episode between or the somewhat bizarre when we have both men in the presence of a cosplaying Daenerys prostitute. Is this the show's twisted way of trying to draw similarities between the two women and their relationship to Jorah and Tyrion? Is this excellent writing or coincidence? Are you guys excited for this pairing and do you think it might you might like it more than the Tyrion and Varys pairing? I just don't think this pairing is going to last very long. Mm. You know, I don't, I don't know unless they do another episode on a boat. But I, <laughs> motherfucker, like, I I can't imagine that they're not just going to get to Marine at this point, and he's going to try and hand her hand him over to Danny. Yeah, it seems like that in the end game. That's a mildly interesting point. You go to Marine, and I mean, I guess if Grey Worm and Barristan are both dead, then maybe there's room for both. But it seems unlikely that Danny would keep both of them. It seems like mm-hmm. she'd execute them both or execute one or the other. Okay, but I do like the I do like the parallels of their structure here, and yeah. also having the Daenerys prostitute is a very interesting way to tie their backstories together. Yeah, in a way that I didn't suspect. So good on you for that, Gary. Moving on, Ryan R.D. said, I was just thinking a bit about Jamie's newfound sense of paternal responsibility. I think there's a close tie-in with the death of his father. My first reaction to Jamie's actions post-Tywin's death made me think he didn't give a flying flea about his dad. But you have to think that no matter who you are, if you have any sort of relationship with your father, his death will bring about a time of deep inner reflection. Perhaps it's this reflection that brought Jamie around to the fact that he's a father himself and now realizes that he wants to try and create a stronger relationship with his children than he had with his dad. I personally am in a constant state of thinking about my parents and trying to parse out the things I want to pass on to my son that I learned from my parents and what I'd like to be different as well when I was growing up. Sure, Jamie could be simply searching for some sister snatch, but after all he's been through in recent times, I'd give him the benefit of the doubt that maybe he's finally grown up and becoming something resembling a human. Too little too late? Most likely, but an A for effort, right? What do you think about this uh, analysis of Jamie? I suppose it could have a big effect on on him as a person. Uh, just thinking about, you know, not necessarily legacy, but, you know, his family more. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing about being a parent. You know what your parents did and how it shaped you. And, like, you try to keep, you try to keep the good and get rid of the bad but on the other hand a lot of that bad is beat into you so it's hard yeah. not to repeat the same mistakes but the desire is always there mm-hmm. i want to take whatever ball we had as a family and move it a little further towards the goalpost whatever those goalposts are but sure. do a little bit better than my parents so i could see that sure i like that uh maddie is batting cleanup he says if we can assume that melisandre is offering her lovely lady lumps to Jon snow in order to do some dark magic perhaps to birth a john smoke <laughs> then was John's love for Egret, and, and then it's just going to turn into Mortal Kombat 11. <laughs> uh, then was John's love. That would be an awesome fatality. 
and with a, a very mature she makes adult. A, a smoke version of you yourself your yeah. character and then it comes and kills you yeah 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 it just flows from her lad that'd be an adult only version <laughs> uh was John's love for Egret an actual barrier to the magic? Would this in turn explain Shireen's presence at the wall? Hmm. Will Stannis' love of Shireen interfere with the Hot One's plans? A barrier to the magic. Love is a barrier to the magic. So Why would that be suggested? I think it's because in a lot of magical lore, and I'm not saying the Game of Thrones is part of this, mm-hmm. uh, love is a protection like you see that yeah, like the matrix you see that yeah you see it in harry potter you see it uh-huh. in like the dresden file series it's kind of similar to like a lot interstellar yeah yeah <laughs> i mean essentially sure sure uh so like that's the one antidote if someone's trying to manipulate you or use you for a dark purpose if you have a true love that anchors you then it kind of mm-hmm. it kind of grounds the magical effect okay i you know uh, clearly, I, you're you're more receptive to this idea than I thought you'd be. So no, I mean, could it be? Sure, right? Sure, it could be. Is it? I don't fucking know. My my, here's my feelings as both a book reader and a show watcher. We are too late in the stream of time with two books to go, two to three seasons left to introduce new concepts of magic that have not been revealed or touched on as of yet. I think anything going forward better be versions of fireballs, dragons, warging, green seizing, resurrection. I'll buy all that and combinations thereof or more potent forms of those. Mm -hmm. If something new like Horcruxes or like love being this universal shield or something like that, it's going to be harder for me to swallow it, let alone a guy like you. Sure. So assuming that Martin knows that because that's. The earlier you're introduced, your mechanic, the magics of mechan, you know, mechanical aspects of magic, mm-hmm. the easier it is to swallow. The later in the game, the more it feels like Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, and I think Martin knows that, uh, and I would suspect that we're not going to see any like truly groundbreaking. Oh shit! Didn't know we, people could do that thing. Yeah, I felt like the last one was maybe the. Uh... The baby, the I White was about Walker to say baby. The same thing. That yeah. was that was a reveal. That was, but even then, that was hinted at. I mean, shit in season two, Craster, uh, Jon Snow all but said he's leaving his sons out for the White Walkers. Now, mm-hmm. were they being sacrificed? We that was a Returning. reveal of what something we already knew. Yeah. But if that had just happened, like you know, in season four without any kind of build up, it'd be like still what it on the yeah. verge of what the fuck, you know. Mm-hmm. But now. We're plowing into season five. I feel like maybe there's one other shoe to be dropped here with Jon Snow and Melisandre and her whatever blood magic she's got going there. Right. I feel like there's there's one other shoe they could drop that maybe has already been foreshadowed that I just don't realize but is that's foreshadowing. The key. It has to have already been yeah. foreshadowed, and and you you should be able to put the pieces together in hindsight. It shouldn't yep. be mm-hmm. no new pieces should be put on the board at this point. I'm with you. All right. That's it for email uh, for this week. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you would like to send us more, uh, Game of Thrones at BaldMove.com. Again, it's not too late to get those spoiler takes in because we've got the tinfoil spoiler section coming out on Friday afternoon mm-hmm. uh, where it's just the book readers and adventuresome show watchers uh, having a little coffee clash, talk, having a little talk about where we see things going, making some theorizations and some speculating uh, you can also do the same on our forums at forums.baldmove.com. What's cool about that is we have separated the show watchers from the book readers. we got a spoiler thread and non-spoiler thread for each episode. 
Um, so you can get down and dirty in a way you can't do on Facebook. By the way, you can keep up with the releases on Facebook.com slash bald move and on Twitter at bald move. That's all I got. Okay, cool. Well, we're going to be back next week right after the episode with an instant cast. Until then, I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. See ya.